Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good morning. It is October the 22nd. It's been another strange, weird, surreal week, as all weeks seem to be in 2020. Uh, the, 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 the Trump circus, the farce goes on. Uh, and the Me Too men's movement, I don't know whether we call it a men's movement, but a movement to, uh, to make men behave better is uh, back in the news. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, as always, made a fool of himself with Barat's daughter. Uh, and uh, Jeffrey Tubin, the New Yorker uh, legal uh, correspondent, uh, um, got himself in big trouble by exposing himself online, supposedly inadvertently, but nonetheless, he's been in the news. Uh, one of the things that occurred to me when I've been reading about the, the Tubin story is what happens to these people? Do they get rehabilitated? Do they disappear? Uh, do we forget them forever? Or perhaps are they able to rebuild themselves, their images, their reputations? One man who knows all about the rebuilding of reputations is Leon Weaseltier. He is or was a, a legendary editor at the New York, uh, at, at the, the New Republic. I almost said New Yorker. Leon, that would have been a Freudian slip. That, uh, would, have been a, that would have been an insult. You would have been off immediately. Uh, uh, at the New Republic, he made uh, he made the the New Republic. Many people believe into the intellectual powerhouse it was, no longer is. Uh, and then uh, two or three years ago, Leon himself was embarrassed by a series of revelations and accusations, which resulted him resigning from the New Republic and from public life. No, no, Le wait, wait, no, no. The New Republic was destroyed in 2014 by Chris Hughes. All right. Was at Brookings and building another journal from which I resigned. Right, so again, uh, fake news. I apologize, Leon has corrected me. Uh, but Leon, the good news for some, for others it may be a little troubling, is Leon is back. He's back with an interesting quarterly called Liberties, a new journal of culture and politics, uh, which the first uh, issue is out. I want to talk to him about the about the quarterly itself and also about his interesting contribution at the back of the book. Uh, for some, as I said, uh, Leon's reappearance, his rehabilitation is troubling. Uh, one uh, one uh, critic in Jezebel suggested that bad men get infinite chances. Now, I'm not saying Leon is a bad man, but in some people's eyes, he is. Uh, before we get to Leon's response on this, I want to quote something from uh, his, his, his end piece in Liberties, this, uh, in this current issue. It's called Steadying, and it's very interesting. Uh, I'm quoting him. He says, one of the consequences of recent, recent social movements in America, Me Too, which came to my door with its lessons and its success, and now Black Lives Matter, 
has been to reveal how poorly we understand each other. The ineradicability of ambiguity from human relations, the ignorance of ourselves that accompanies our ignorance of others, the whole fallible trap creates an urgent need for tolerance and more strenu strenuously for forgiveness. Historians will record in the early decades of the 21st century, we became an unforgiving society, a society of furies, a society in search of guilt and shame, a society of sanctimonies and struggle sessions, American style. America should become more Christian. That, of course, is a, is a bit of a joke from Leon, given that uh, he's not Christian. Uh, Leon, uh, to begin, respond to some of your critics who say that you shouldn't have been re rehabilitated, that we shouldn't forgive you for your supposed sins. Well, there are many things to say about that. Uh, my sins, such as they were, were uh, not were hardly of the unforgivable sort. Um, and I have extended forgiveness to people in my life, and I believe in the extending of forgiveness. Um, I apologized, and I went away. Uh, where I reflected and read books and spent time with my son and listened to music and uh, lived basically on the margins of my world. I had a very illuminating experience of exile or pariahdom, if you will. Uh, but, um, but I, as the Americans like to say, as far as I'm concerned, paid my dues. Uh, there was one, there was one case, I mean, I don't want to relitigate anything because, uh, it's in nobody's interest for me to relitigate many of the allegations against me. Uh, many of them were absurd or worse and the people who made them know that, uh, but I'm not reopening anything. Um, I lived quietly for three years and I came back to do what I do. I'm a writer and I think, and anyone who doesn't want to uh, read what I write or read what I publish is welcome not to. And um, anyone who thinks that unforgivingness is an admirable quality is a bloody fool and is damaging our society. Uh, because right now, all everybody in our society is busy with, especially on the left, is a grand search for purity, as if anybody is pure, as if anybody is pure. Um, I felt my contrition. Uh, I lived with my conscience. I made distinctions between things. I'm not a potted plant. I, I, I can analyze my situation as well. Um, I had I have no doubt that many that there were there were real abuses of due process and other things during the storm three years ago, not only with me. I mean, there were men who were accused of things. There were men who were accused of rape who never raped anybody. That is a very, very grave thing. And um, whereas I regard the Me Too movement as on balance a positive development in American society. 
uh, and certainly a kind of awakening to a new level of awareness about the way in which, as I wrote, we understand or don't understand each other. Certainly we don't, I didn't understand how I came off to certain colleagues of mine. Well, let, let, let me uh, let me uh, let me rephrase the question, Leon. Um, how is the the Leon of 2020 different from the Leon of 2017? What did you learn about yourself over the last three years? I learned that my understanding of myself is not the final word on who I am. I learned that uh, that I learned about the 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 limitations of perspective, something which I knew about philosophically, but had never actually lived it in some sharp way, the way I did. I learned that how one appears to others, regardless of one's intention, uh, matters, not just, uh, not just in terms of human relations, but morally, but morally. Uh, so yeah, I, there were all sorts of things that I learned. Um, I did not learn that uh, that mobs are justified. I did not learn that due process is not necessary. I did not learn that an allegation should be, should be tantamount to a conviction. I did not learn that people should not be allowed to defend themselves when they are when they are attacked. I did not learn any of those things. Um, there were grotesque things that happened in those in those years. Uh, but I, um, I'm a thoughtful person and I took my thoughtfulness home and applied it to my own condition. How much did your personal experience reflect uh, your, your, uh, your work with Liberties, this new journal? It seems like there's uh, an intimacy between your, at least your reading of, of what happened to you over the last three or four years and the experience of liberalism itself or the crisis of liberty? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the, the good deeds can be performed for bad reasons and every human action is overdetermined in its causes. And I think, as I say, that whereas the the awakening of many men i hope to sensitivities that they were dead to before the me too movement um whereas that is a good thing uh i think that that there were allegations the spirit in which allegations were made was a deeply illiberal spirit let me let me uh, read something again from your studying uh, about the journal, Leon, which I think uh, is particularly compelling. You say you write this journal begins its life in a time of breakdown and bewilderment, of arousal and expectancy. It is called Liberties because of all the splendid echoes of the world: liberty, liberal, liberate, liberality, even libertarian. It is both a grave word and a joyous word. The plural is a tribute to the plurality of freedoms that the citizens of a growing number of countries are being ruthlessly denied. Above all, it is meant to announce that in this universe of fascists and commissars, 
the objective of these pages will be by argument and by example in politics and culture, and I'm my stress here, the rehabilitation of liberalism. The slander of liberalism is one of the spectacular idiocies of our age. To curse liberalism is to curse the future. Why does Leon liberalism need to be rehabilitated? What has happened to it? Well, it's being, as I say, slandered and, uh, dis and, and misrepresented and rejected and denounced everywhere, um, everywhere. Obviously on the right, uh, with the, in the new authoritarian ascendancy in which we're living, and I partially include our own, our own country in that, though maybe it'll last only a few weeks longer. Um, Two weeks, to be exact. Okay. I hope. Well, anyway. Exactly. We're all counting the minutes. Uh, there's no question that 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 we the the the, the 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 right, the conservatives, and again, can my conservative friends will not like my association of them with Trump. But it was the conservatives and the Republicans who inflicted this monster on this society. And it was the Republican Party that chose to go along with him and enable him. History would be very different if the Republican Party in, in Washington had chosen a different course, but it didn't. So the, the behavior of these, of that, that, let's call it that community, has been deeply illiberal, certainly since Trump was in the White House and in many ways before that. Uh, on the left, uh, we now have the return of a kind of intolerant, self-righteous progressivism that knows the answers to all the questions, uh, that, is, uh, that has loyalty tests and purity tests. For These are the, the, the commissars you talk about, Those obviously, with, with reference to yeah, the 20th century history. The cancel people, the purists, the, yeah, um, and they... Uh, they are perfectly comfortable, as far as I can tell, with, um, they're perfectly comfortable living in a society in which certain opinions and certain voice, voices are not heard, uh, are not heard. And uh, my sense is, and again, I won't put words into your mouth, but you would include within these commissars the, the commanding heights of the American cultural economy, the New York Times and the New Yorker. Is that fair? I think that is more than fair. I think that the New York Times may be the most poisonous influence on American culture right now. <laughs> and I Leon, seriously, I mean, that, that's quite a, that's quite a, an accusation. The New York Times educates its readers every morning that culture is an extension of politics, that it's politics by other means. I think the New York Times has adopted a cause. And some of the cause I share, uh, but I think that certainly in its coverage of culture, the New York Times is reductionist and tendentious and interested in furthering a particular approach to culture, which is essentially political. They politicize everything. Uh, and some of the stuff that gets printed there, I have to say, I used to think that I was unsurprisable, but I keep getting surprised. Uh, Let's go back to this idea of rehabilitating liberalism. Are you suggesting that liberalism in its most 
I wouldn't say academic, but in its in in its more in its most accurate definition in political terms, separate politics and culture. Absolutely. Who are the who are the high priests or high priestesses of liberalism well, who we should be reading reading or rereading? Well, look, there are lots of great liberal thinkers. I mean, you have to start with Mill on Liberty. You have to read Isaiah Berlin. You have to read the 19th century French philosopher Constant. You have to. I mean, there's a vast and rich reading list for liberalism. But let's not talk about let's not talk about figures or names. I think that the, the fundamental premise of a liberal view of the world is that we live in different realms and that none of the realms should be reduced to any of the other realms. That all the realms have autonomy and, and, and integrity and obviously they have relations with each other. So for example, if I ask you a cultural question, I do not want a political answer. If I ask, if I, if, if I ask you a political question, I do not want an economic answer. Um, I think that the first, the cardinal principle of liberalism is to is to is to recognize and respect the integrity of these different realms and not to try to turn many things into one thing so for example um, it's not it's clear to me that the 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 war for social justice the battle for social justice in the united states has nothing whatsoever to do with the future of art for example Nothing. I remember some years ago, the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, mounted a really fine retrospective of a 19th century American painter called Thomas Cole, who painted landscapes in the Catskills in the early decades of the 19th century and was really in painting the father of American romanticism. And the Times ran a, a very positive review of, the, of the, the show. And the critic wondered what these paintings have to tell us in the age of Me Too. The answer is nothing. Because they, because everything is not about that. Let's go back to liberties, um, uh, Leon. You suggested that the definition of of, of liberty is liberties is is a, a multiplicity of views. Yeah. One of the things that struck me about this first edition, which I found very interesting, thank you, was I didn't find a lot of multiplicity though. I mean, you have Michael Ignatiev, who's been on this show, who is one of the world's most, I think sophisticated liberal thinkers. Uh, you have a number of other people uh, sort of echoing in many ways Ignatiev and what you're thinking, but there was no one from the other side. Why didn't you include views in liberties that you're not comfortable with, that you disagree with? Well, I, let's put, I, there are things in the issue that I'm not entirely comfortable with. There are people, there are some conservatives, there are some progressives. Um, you know, I... Uh, but uh, one of the criticisms I heard was you got Thomas Chatterton Williams, who, of course, organized the, the infamous Harper's Letter. Uh, you've got no one who, who, who uh, is, is, would, would be deeply critical, for example, of that, that Harper's Letter. Well, I think that every I think anyone who is deeply critical of the Harper's Letter uh, is is in some way illiberal. I'm not speaking about, you can argue about details of this and that, but um, I am here to give voice at some length to writers who do not feel comfortable uh, either among the sharks or among the jets.
I did this at the old magazine at the New Republic, and I'm doing it now. Uh, as I say, there are and there will be conservatives in the in the journal. There there are and there will be some progressives in the journal. But you know, every journal has to have a, a core of conviction. I mean, I'm not a TV channel, and the viewpoints of people who would disagree with Thomas or would disagree with Michael are to be found everywhere you look, everywhere you look. I mean, if you want- Leon, I was very struck with this, this uh, final remark you make. Uh, uh, to curse liberalism is to curse the future. Uh, that really struck me. What did you mean by that? I mean that the alternatives to liberalism are dead ends for our society. Or their returns, they're a form of nostalgia. Are you suggesting well, that the only way to liberate ourselves from nostalgia is liberalism? Well, it's not about nostalgia. It's that um, intolerance of any kind is a dead end for our society. Uh, large ideological views about public policy is a dead end for society. Um, hysterical emotional gestures in place of actual political reforms are a dead end for our society. Uh, any apocalyptic mentality, as opposed to the patience that is required to respect distinctions and differences and actually do the work of policy and social relations is a dead end for our society. I think that, um, that the grandiosity on the left and the grandiosity on the right uh, both in the elites and uh, in, among the populists, let's not call them the masses, that seems very condescending, but, but in the population, I think that this grandiosity is the very opposite of moral and policy seriousness. And liberalism stands for something much less emotionally satisfying, much less immediately gratifying, but very, very serious about the work that needs to be done. You know, if you take the, 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 the subject of um, race in our society, uh, what we are witnessing right now in, in culture and to a certain extent in politics is the triumph of Malcolm X over Martin Luther King. I think that is a disaster, an absolute disaster. Because in fact, the accomplishments of the civil rights movement, however incomplete they were, were not nugatory and they were brought about by a liberal like King and a liberal like Lyndon Johnson. There is no other way to advance the cause of justice. There is no other way. There are other ways to, 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 be, to, to satisfy oneself uh, emotionally. There are other ways to be eloquent about things, uh, there, but there is just no other way. They're all dead ends. Liam, we've got to the point in the show when I usually ask my guest for a suggestion of, of further reading or listening or watching. And I'm going to get to you on that first. But I want to suggest something. Uh, I don't usually do this, but I can't resist today uh, speaking to the great Leon W. Um, when it comes to liberalism, I would suggest everyone not only buy Dylan's new album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, which is perhaps his greatest masterpiece or amongst his greatest oh, masterpieces, to uh, I Contain Multitudes. And, and this is Dylan at his greatest. He's saying, 
I'm just like Anne Frank, like Indiana Jones and them British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. I go right to the edge. I go right to the end. I go right where all things lost and made good again. I sing the songs of experience like w William Blake. I have no apologies to make. Everything's flowing all at the same time. I live on a boulevard of crime. I drive fast cars and I eat fast food. I contain multitudes. And I think this phrase, I contain multitudes, is perhaps the most brilliant of all definitions of, of what liberalism is or should be. I contain, liber uh, not liberalism, I contain multitudes. Uh, uh, Leon, you're in your 19th well, let, century house. Sorry, go on. Let's talk about that. Um, there are two ways. The phrase I contain multitudes, of course, is Whitman's, not Dylan's. But uh, there are two ways to look at this. One is a positive way, and I think that, and it's admirable, that uh, we always talk about a multicultural society. I believe in multicultural individuals. I think that people should aspire to enrich their imaginations and their souls and their experience with exposure to as many um, alternative ways of viewing the world and of living life as possible. Uh, and in that sense, those lyrics are a retort to a very simplistic, uh, straightened, without the GH, narrow, impoverished idea of identity, according to which it must be one thing and it all must add up and tie together in a neat package. And I think those lyrics eloquently exemplify the idea that there are many identities in identity and that we choose at various times in our lives to 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 italicize which identity we wish to be known by now and why. And, and you know that as well as anyone, right? Right. On the other hand, there is another way to read what Dylan is writing there, which is usually, I'm afraid, how I read Dylan, which is it's just a kind of poetic promiscuity. It's just I do what I want. I groove on these influences. Um, I'm this, I'm that, I'm everything, I'm nothing. As long as the words rhyme and I have a record out in six months, it's fine. It's fine. Um, so, uh, you know, it all uh, you've shut me down, Leon. I'm not going to. I'm not going to write anything for liberties now. What? Uh, and, and I'm thrilled to have you back because who else could be so erudite and sharp and smart and entertaining all at the same time? What should what else in addition to liberties should people be reading? I know you're stuck, if that's the right word, in your 19th century carriage house in Washington, D.C., the, the offices where liberties is being produced. Uh, what else would you suggest people read in these strange times before a particularly weird election in America? Um, the more history they read, the, 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 the stronger they're going to feel. Um, one of the reasons that people are so afraid is because they don't know a lot of history. And when you read history, you discover that our crises, even though some of them are pretty spectacular, are not altogether unprecedented. And there is a kind of spiritual fortification in the recognition that that people have been through terrible things before and that they've gotten through them. They've gotten through them intellectually. They've gotten through them as a society. Um, I think it would it would it would it would strengthen people to read history, and I think you know if people have the and I think people should also find a way to insulate part of their brains and therefore their reading 
from the insane over-politicization of everything. I mean, we are being inundated with this to a degree that is unprecedented. So I mean, give me a good non apolitical or non-political book that people should read. Um, well, I, you did, I don't mean to sound as pretentious as I am, but they should read Seneca. They should read the Stoics and see what it was like when people um, found themselves in situations of unbearable danger and learned how to develop mental and spiritual habits to keep their balance and their equilibrium and to fight the good fight without um, surrendering to hysteria. And by the way, since we're talking about ancient Rome, the only thing that I've ever read that can get gives an adequate account of Trump, even though we now know that there are three new books every week, the only thing I've ever read that describes Trump are, are the accounts of the, the lunatic late Roman emperors in Tacitus and Suetonius. If you want to see what Trump was like, what, what he's like, if you want to understand him, read about Caligula. I mean, that's, that, that was a, that's been my experience. But in my reading, as I say, we're so inundated by all this news, real news, fake news, good news, bad news. Um, you know, we can hardly breathe. We're exhausted by it mentally. And I think people, the, the, the one better part of wisdom is to try to start building some walls in their minds so that they can enjoy a work of art or a film or a, or, 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 or a poem or, or whatever, whatever, whatever restores them to themselves, whatever restores them to themselves. Because the truth is the pandemic arrived when we were already depleted by recent events in history. We were running on empty before COVID hit. And so you combine these pressures and the stress that people are living under now really is unbearable, really is unbearable. And I think what they have to learn to do is to resist it by, by finding standpoints for resistance. And by resistance, I don't mean uh, political resistance because that's part of political life. <coughs> Excuse me. I mean, experiences um, and influences that will help them recover themselves, especially because Trump is, inshallah, going to lose. And there is an awful lot of work to be done in this country. Even if Biden wakes up in the White House, that's three. That's 30 percent of the problem. No more. No more. The social and economic and cultural challenges that, that face us are spectacular and we will need our resources and our resources are being depleted. And so what I'm interested in, you know, I think of the journal for me, and it certainly is for me, but I think of it for its readers as a kind of, what do they used to call it in Superman comics? A fortress of solitude. Uh, I love to quote Superman comics. It's where I published the first thing I ever published when I was 10. Um, but a fortress of solitude, a way of of husbanding their resources, of collecting themselves so that they're ready for what has to happen next. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, 
If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.